Westmount, let's take our Bibles and turn with me in the book of Exodus, book of Exodus, Exodus 34, Exodus 34. This morning has already been said and sung, I think we recognize, we would say that this morning is important for the Christian church, is it not? It's a very important morning. It is the morning where we celebrate the truth that defines us. And what is that? What is the truth that defines us? It is that in the beginning, at the first, God created the heavens and the earth. And mankind, Genesis 1 and 2, give us that truth. God is the creator. He is the originator of all of us. More, God not only created everything, but here it is, God rightfully owns everything. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. We said that already this morning. That is, every blade of grass, every pebble, every mountain, every animal, every human being is whose? The Lord's, the Lord's. And God is not just a creator, he's the only creator, and he is this, he is perfect and he is holy. Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, this rock God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Later, 1 John 1, five confirms, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is what? No darkness at all. The truth of a perfect holy God has implications for those he has made. Such as this. Such as this. He requires perfect obedience to his law. It's the creator's standard. It's not our standard. It's not horizontal, it's His standard. God's Son defined that standard in clear terms, the clearest we could say, Matthew 5.48, when He said this, You therefore must be perfect. You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. Yes, God's perfection, His character perfection, demands perfection. That means 99.99% still what? Fall short. James 2.10 states that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It is this, beloved, keep the law perfectly or fall short of it. It's either or. And all fall short of it, we all do. You may deny that, but it doesn't mean it's not true. From Adam to you and to me, we have all broken God's law. Romans 3.10 declares none is righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 makes clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the penalty for unrighteousness, for falling short of the standard? What's the penalty, we would say, for all? For rebellion? For sin? Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And by the way, that is not just death in this life. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So the wages of our sin is eternal death. That is the second death. That's eternal separation from God. 
Along with that is the truth that man cannot save himself by his good works. No amount of good deeds or good and respectable living can ever erase the penalty. Isaiah 64.6 articulates this moral principle. It says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That means our measuring stick, our standard of righteousness, our feel-good deeds really are stained before a holy God. So we cannot measure our good works with our own moral compass. Why? It's broken. It's broken. Psalm 49.7 attests to that and it says this, listen, no man can give to God the price of his life. That's bad news, isn't it? And yet that truth is what informs and leads to what has been so glorious this morning, hasn't it? As we've been saying so often recently, that's the black cloth behind the diamond. Yes, for some of us, the news is no longer bad. That news, here it is, praise God, hallelujah, it no longer defines us. And so along with that truth, we celebrate today this truth. Let's proclaim it, that this creator God, God the Father, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And this son, the Christ, was both God and man, perfect God and sinless man. Colossians 2 verse 9 says that in Christ, in this Son, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2 describes this incarnation. It says, Christ, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And then how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Of course, the other big point in the calendar months from now would be Christmas where we celebrate the incarnation and the birth of that son this Christ on earth would go on to demonstrate God's love by how as Jerry reminded us this morning by laying down his life Philippians 2 8 goes on to say in being found in human form Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross this is love Christ condescending in humiliation and submitting his life for the rebel. For the rebel. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Note that. Not when we cleaned ourselves up. In while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Thus, that glorious truth we celebrated Friday is an exchange 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Church, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of course, the glorious truth culminated with the heart of what we rejoice in this morning, what we confess, along with the local, universal, and ancient church, that Christ did not remain on the cross or stay in the tomb. We proclaim this morning what? That Christ rose again from the grave and is alive today. As the angel said so plainly in Luke 24, verse 6, at the empty tomb to those seeking, He is not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. Yes, he was buried, raised, and appeared. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, then James and all the apostles, and last of all to Paul. Christ appearing in glory to those that saw him crucified and buried. Christ risen in glory, not only as a testimony to his victory over death, but here, listen, as an emblem of offering accepted, offering accepted by God, wrath appeased, Christian penalty paid. That resurrection glory, church, is what we celebrate today. That truth is our salvation. That truth is our hope. And here it is this morning. If you're here this morning, repented of your sin, placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is now that truth that defines who you are. And Christian, that truth is naturally then, thus it must be, if it's true, it must be reflected in your life. Not just this morning, not just by attendance at church on a Sunday morning. It's reflected in all of your life. It shines forth from your life. Before others who look on your life, who look on your loves, who look on your light that shines out from you, and they get a glimpse of the Christ. Through you, Christian, through your life, the rebel, the unregenerate, the depraved, the evildoer, through you they catch a glimpse of the invisible God, a reflection of the living Christ. You, Christian, again as we were reminded this morning, indwelt with the very presence of God, His Holy Spirit in you. Recognize this morning, celebrate this morning, this post-tomb truth. Listen to it as we read it. The glory 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Listen. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we all, did you hear it, with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. With unveiled face, Christian, that is the truth that you celebrate this morning. Let us then on this special morning be reminded of how far Yahweh has brought us. To do that, we're helped by our passage in Exodus, the one before us. Go to verse 29, Exodus 34. We are helped by this text. Look at it with me. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. 
Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he'd commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Father, before this text and in light of this morning, we pray that you would help us to see what we must. For those of us that are yours, Lord, with face unveiled. God, we thank you for that truth. Let us receive, understand, and live to your glory this day. Amen. The veiled face of Moses, do you see it there? Necessary to communicate to the people of Israel after, remember, his second stay on Sinai for 40 days. This time, however, there was no abrupt end. This time, after a full, uninterrupted course on the mountain, a veil is needed. A veil, look at it, not necessary for himself or for God, right? Moses didn't need it in God's presence, but necessary for his communication with the people. Do you see that? The sinful people, the rebellious, those who dare not touch the mountain, remember? Let alone ascend the mountain for them. In verse 30, it is made quite clear the veil is a necessity for them. In fact, the text tells us they are afraid. Why? Well, something is being reflected. Do you see it in Moses' face this time? There's something radiating from his face. His face is different. Look at verse 29. It says, the skin of his face shone. Behind that word is this idea of something going forth, bursting forth, shining forth. Now that points to a question this text raises, and we must address it here first, because if we don't, it's going to loom over our time this morning. And the question is this, maybe you're asking now, well, what was that like? What was his face like? What did it look like? What did they see? And church, the answer is we don't know. We don't know right? We need to get comfortable with the mystery of the Bible at times and not insert ourselves into it. Beloved, I would say mercifully, we have no idea. But here it is. The point of this text is not to give us facial details. The point of this text is not to go into detail about the features of Moses on his second trip up Sinai. That's not the point. No, the point is of the text is that whatever it looked like, here it is, Moses' face shone and it radiated from being with Yahweh. The point is that after such an extended time in God's presence, Moses' face was different. That's the point. And so different that others couldn't bear it. Did you see that in the text? Others couldn't bear it. That's how different it was. And response of the rest of Israel, remember the fear, reminds us of the context here. Chapter 32, remember the great sin. Chapter 33, remember the intercession of Moses. And chapter 34, what we've covered over the past two weeks, the renewal, the covenant renewal. That's the context. And in the wake of those events, Moses descends the mountain, and now this, not just with tablets or the law from God, but bearing the face of God, it would appear. The face, remember, back in chapter 33, 20, that Moses couldn't see and live. Well, here Moses will bear a reflection, that's the key, a reflection of the divine face on his own face. 
And here Moses' shining face not only shone forth God's presence, but Moses' shining face before Israel radiated with implications. Let's just consider a few for a moment. Number one, some implications of the shining face. One, Moses' face here, look at verse 29, revealed that God was drawing closer to them. Do you see that? His shining face as a reflection of the glory of God revealed God was drawing closer to them, strikingly with each sinful stumble of Israel. And mark it as we track here in Exodus, God drew nearer. It wasn't just calling God's representative Moses up the mountain, Exodus 19, but it was Moses bringing something from God back down from the mountain, the law, Exodus 20. It wasn't just God's representative coming down the mountain after the calf. Now it was God's radiance in Moses' face that approached God's presence. So close to Israel throughout the Exodus, now amazingly closer than ever. And look at it. His face of Moses, his face bore the glory of God on the face of one of them. That's how close God was. Christian, this Old Testament account witnesses to the coming New Testament truth. Yes, for you, Christian, you are held fast, close, and tight. He remains close to you. That is why for his true sheep, they can never get far. For those of you that are in Christ, you know this principle. He just keeps coming. In Luke 15, Jesus, in fact, tells us three parables in one chapter to communicate this truth. So that's one. God was drawing closer to them. Two, Moses' face was yet another demonstration, and we've had many in Exodus, yet another demonstration of God's greatness. Yahweh, remember, had made a burning bush, or a bush burn, sorry. He made it burn, but not burn up, Exodus 3. Yahweh had caused supernatural plagues to ravage Egypt, but not touch Israel supernaturally. Yahweh had parted the Red Sea and thrown horse and rider into the sea. Yahweh had brought forth water from a rock and bread from heaven. Yahweh had thundered from the mountain and engraved his law on stone, all incredible mighty works from above. And here this God alone, unlike any pagan deity or false god, emblazoned his glory on the face of mere man. Just stop for a moment. What kind of God is this? He emblazoned his glory on the face of a mere mortal. And that face of Moses, think with me, would be the canvas of God's glory. Not Egypt's pantheon of gods, nor any in Canaan would know anything of this. Remember, the hallmark of of false gods and false religion is distance. Distance. And the glorious truth of the Christian message is intimacy. And here we say, or we see, on the very face of Moses, the glory of God, it doesn't get more intimate than that. You know, we could say this, greatness so often is measured in how much a great one elevates those around him. Is that not true? The measure of greatness is the impact that the one has on those around him. 
such greatness imparted to others, or here it is, such greatness reflected in others. Well, listen, that's true might, is it not? Not true greatness, as we see here from the face of Moses. How God can make man to reveal his glory, that is greatness. Thirdly, Moses' face was a shining reminder that they could not bear God's presence. Do you see that? This point is amplified when you consider that Moses' face, here it is, was only the reflection of the glory of God. Don't miss that in this text. His face was only the reflection. So what would that be like? It would be like with a moon coming up. As you watch the moon in the sky and you turn your eyes away because you can't even look at the moon. And more, this would be every time, not just the first time you look at the moon. Look at verse 34. Whenever, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he's commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And here it is, Moses would put the veil over his face again. We could say again and again until he went in to speak with him. The first word in verse 34, look at it there, whenever, tells us something about frequency. This just kept happening again and again. It tells us that each time the people saw Moses' face, after his intimate communion with God, each time they couldn't bear it and needed Moses to veil his face. Simply, God's people then needed veiled face to behold the glory of their God. So let's not miss that. Here in the text, in the context here, they needed veiled face. They needed veiled face to behold the glory of God. Now, a brief word about a veil. As you consider a veil, first thing we would say is very different to the veil that we've studied in the tabernacle, right? That would be the tabernacle veil separating the holy of holies from the holy place. Secondly, we would say a veil, when we think about a veil as it's being used here over a face, it can be helpful and it can be even necessary at times. It's true. It has a place. A veil, a facial veil, has a place and it has a time. Of course, many of you know that in times gone by, the bride would wear a veil, right? The bride would wear a veil for a time and wore a veil until a special time, right? Until that time. And if you consider that ancient illustration, you would recognize immediately it would be a very strange marital relationship, if a marriage at all, if the bride said, you know, I'm going to wear this veil for the rest of our marriage. That would be strange and even stranger if the bridegroom operated as if the veil was still needed. You need to keep that on. We need to interact this way with a veiled face and provided one. Listen, the folly of the illustration is that the veil was designed for what? To be temporal. That's the point of the veil. To bring you to a time. The veil was never intended to be permanent. However, this is really practically important. Like all things temporal, we can have a strange obsession with the temporal, can't we? We want to cling to it like it's permanent. And a temporal obsession in time, in our thirst for permanence with the temporal, can lead to something more debilitating, not the least of which 
is deadly permanent. And I know some of you are thinking of the obvious parallels in the world today, but that's not where the text is meant to point us. This veil points forward to its future removal. As the Apostle Paul teaches centuries later, he considered the veil in light of Israel's relationship to it. This is the key. Paul is going to pick up on this, the temporariness of the veil. And more, what that veil became to be a symbol of for ancient Israel. This temporary thing and what it came to represent. And here it is. Here's the deadly piece. The blockage to their God. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. The blockage to relationship with their God. 2 Corinthians 3. We've read a bit of this already. We're just going to pick up the argument here in verse 7. And it will speak for itself. 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul outlines this contrast. Look at it here in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Wow. Because of the glory that surpasses it. No glory at all. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Look at those verses again. Paul is contrasting two things here. And he says it in a number of ways so that we get the point. The ministry of death, verse 7, versus what? The ministry of the Spirit, verse 8. The ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness, verse 9. What was being brought to an end versus what is permanent, verse 11. You see that. And what he is doing in this contrast is showing the superiority of something that is new. Or we would say the superiority of the new. And of course, by the new, what is in view is the new covenant. The the covenant, that new covenant, first promised to Israel, Jeremiah 31.31, And the covenant that we Gentiles are adopted into, brought into through our faith in Israel's Messiah. That new covenant, Paul says here, is far greater than what came before. And to prove this point, Paul takes us back to the old economy and right to our text this morning, Exodus 34. That's what he's doing. Paul says that administration, that ministry, was death and condemnation. Why? Why was it so? The New Testament bears this out because it could never save anyone. Not Israel, not us. It wasn't salvific. It was never intended to be. And they were right to tremble at it because if understood rightly, when confronted with the law, when the demands of the law were understood rightly, and this still bears true today, when there's a right understanding of what God is demanding in his law, it causes you to what? Tremble. You, you, you tremble when you rightly understand. And a right trembling because the standard was and is futility. This is the point, by the way, of Jesus' exposition in the Sermon on the Mount. To outline the law in all its fullness in the character of God, but practically to bring you to your knees. To say, I can't do that. I thought lust was this. I thought it was that. 
Or I thought anger was this, and it is that. Or I thought loving was this, and it is that. It's to bring us to our knees. Humanly speaking, to stare down the barrel of the old was to stare at death. It was to look at the law in all its finer bits. Think of it, to just stare at the law and stand condemned. Say, I can't. Paul says, look, if that ministry of death, look at verse 7 here. If that ministry of death came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face, verse 8, and here is the argument, will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, have even more glory? I think we, we get this. In other words, if there's glory in death, how much more glory in life with the Spirit? Even more, he continues... Now think of the veil. That old way was temporary. Look at verse 7. Not only temporary, it was fading. And we consider the context back in Exodus 34 for a moment. That glory faded on Moses' face. He was a man of God, but a man of sin too. Thus, he returned to the tent before God's face, receiving glory again and again, only to have it fade again and again. So not only a ministry of death and condemnation, but a temporary ministry that was fading. In light of that, Paul says, look at verse 11. In light of that, he says this, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. There it is. To put it all together then, the point is this. There is no lasting glory in what fades. There is no lasting glory in the temporal. And we know that. We know it. Moses' shining face, as blazing as it was, would soon pass. Even more, not only his face, Moses himself, that living vessel, would soon fade and pass away. He would not, of course, see Canaan. So again, the Old Testament points forward and witnesses to the coming of something more. Let's grab this. Something more. A greater ministry, a greater Moses, a greater manifestation of glory. That's the point. Paul continues then, look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ Is it taken away? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. To this day, do you see it? Whenever Moses is read, synonymous with the Old Testament, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That is a reference, of course, to the they is Israel, the Jew. And that veil does remain for most The Orthodox Jew that reads Moses, that reads the Old Testament, and their minds are hardened. They come to texts like Isaiah 53, and they have nothing to see. They don't have the eyes to see their Messiah smack dab in the middle of texts like that. They can't let go of the temporary veil that's blinding them. The veil that's comprised of the shadow, of the ritual, of the comfort. That's the veil. And it is this. It's the veil of unbelief. It blinds to seeing the fullness of glory revealed. And what is that 
fullness of glory, it is, of course, the greater Moses, the Messiah, the Christ, the only one, Paul says, verse 14, look at it, that can lift the veil. The only one, verse 16, that can remove the veil. The one in whose blood we receive the glory of the new covenant. This Christ and in Christ and only in Christ does Jew and Gentile alike have the ability to behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. Only through Christ. Just Christ. Only in Christ do we possess a ministry of the Spirit, a ministry of righteousness, and a ministry of permanence. That is what the veiled face of Moses is pointing to. Points forward to one that was not just a man like Moses, but a God-man, the Son of God. Points forward to one who was not fading like Moses, but eternal, the everlasting one. And one who was not reflecting glory like Moses, not just reflecting glory like the moon to the sun, but one who was the sun, who was the glory, Christ, John 1. The New Testament message to the Jew, who would be clinging to their law works, and to the Gentile, clinging to their good works, is this. Why would you? Why, in the face of one greater, would you cling to the veil? Look one last time at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, that's key. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Right there in that verse indicates a response. A response to this truth. And so we must finish with what we started off the top. Our joy this morning is not just Christian information. Our joy this morning is not just that's the place Christians are on Lord's Day or Resurrection Sunday. Our joy this morning isn't that there's a different kind of energy in this place because it's Resurrection Sunday. Our joy isn't sensual in that sense. Our joy is just that we sing differently and we have a different program this morning. Our joy is not in that. And beloved, if your joy is in that, tomorrow is not going to be the day you expect. And so we must finish with where we started off the top because this is so important. It is about much more than information we proclaim today. Not that we're even doing that. Yes, Creator God. Yes, Holy God. Yes, fallen sinful man. Yes, Jesus the Son sent. Yes, Jesus did the work we cannot do. Yes, He died. Yes, He was buried. And yes, gloriously, He rose again. But what of a response to that? What does the gospel call on one to do? What is the gospel today calling you to do? As Jerry reminded us this morning, just nod your head and say, well, yes. I've been saved for a long time. I've been in the church all my life. Is it calling on you to say, yeah, I'm okay with that. Visiting, I'm visiting with family today and I'm okay with Jesus. Or is it just to give more intellectual assent? Oh, I understand Exodus 34 and 2 Corinthians 3 better. Is that what it is? No. The last gospel piece to mention is what Paul does in light of Exodus 34 and Moses. And it is this. It is the gospel is the only salvation after death. 
This is all the spine of these texts. When one turns to the Lord, here's the implication, he is spared. When one turns to the Lord, he is spared. Luke 13, 3. Christ said, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent. The gospel is the only forgiveness in life. Isaiah 55, 7 says this, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. There it is again. That he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We've covered this in Exodus 2. God extends compassion because that's who he is. He's a God of mercy, a God of grace. God extends compassion. Forgiveness for your sin is offered To those who turn to the Lord, you could join with us today as we join with the redeemed from of old and sing with joy this day this, Psalm 103.12. As far, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Oh, blessed thought. The gospel is the power of God to confess Mind and heart, Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Listen to this, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You will be saved. Salvation is to believe in. Not just nod at or attend to. It is to believe in what we celebrate this morning. The resurrection. The message this morning remains the same as the days after the empty tomb. Acts 2.21 Everyone, without condition, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Acts 17.30 The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands some people, no, the text says, all people everywhere to what? Repent. And if you are here this morning, in a fleshly sense, it's unfortunate that you are no longer ignorant to the good news of the gospel. You have no more excuse. God calls you to repent. He calls you to lay down your arms, get on your knees, and say, I'm a sinner and I need you. Because there's no other way. Beloved, this truth, this word of God is our joy and our celebration this morning. And as Christ asked after, or before, I'm sorry, Lazarus came from that tomb, do you remember Mary, Martha, right, attending to Jesus? And Martha gives the right Christian answer. Oh yes, there will be a resurrection. Oh yes, I'm a good Jew and I know the resurrection. And and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, you've done the Sunday school thing. You've showed up at church. You know all the right things to say at just the right time with a just right smile on your face. And Christ looks at her and says, do you believe this? And I ask you this morning, in light of not only this text and this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe what you've heard proclaimed today? Do you believe it? Do you believe what you've sung today? Do you believe it? Will you believe it tomorrow? Will you believe it next week and next month in that accident, in that diagnosis, in that next year of life? Will you believe? 
consider with me this morning that you can look to the glory of God with Christ with unveiled face. The veil is gone in Him. Are you lost this morning? Are you unsure of your eternal security? Are you wrestling? Did you get up this morning not sure that if you die tonight you don't know where you'll be? Listen to me. Look to Christ. Are you burdened this morning? Look to Christ. Do you fear? Do you have that deep fear? As you read the news, as you hear different things, do you have that fear that grips you, that is paralysis? Listen to me. Look to Christ. Do you seek mercy and forgiveness? Is there that sin at that time that you can't let go of and say, no one would forgive me of that? Listen to me. Look to Christ. Are you utterly tempted to despair this morning? Listen to me. Look to Christ. Only through the Christ is the veil removed to see clearly and truly. Only Jesus Christ and Christ alone can remove the veil. Look to Christ. Behold him in all his glory. Let him remove the veil and see and behold the glory of God. Unveiled face. Father in heaven, Lord, that we can. We rejoice in that truth that we can. Look to your son. Oh, what love is this? We once rebels, we sinners, Lord, that can do that. Father, we just rejoice this morning. We want to continue that great expression of joy. Be with us this day as we glory in the empty tomb and glory that we can Behold, with face unveiled, your glory. Amen.